The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. As we were being led in that song from that old song, Psalm 23, I was reminded that, and even this morning got a text from a member of the body during, uh, during the service to pray, walking through that shadow of hard place. How many of you are going through that shadow of hard place right now. Let me see your hands. He is taking you through the valley of the shadow of death. Amen? It's not around, but he's taking you through that. How many of you would testify that you know that he has taken you through a valley of the shadow of death? Let me hear you put your hands together and just praise him for that. Uh, thank you, choir and Vanessa and Brian. A couple of announcements I want to make before we get into the Word this morning. Uh, if you're looking for, if you're in need of a weekend that's just kind of a spiritual retreat, a spiritual uplifting, a time of, of communion, time of uh, res- restoration, if you will, reconnecting in your relationship to the Lord or relationships and family, there's a weekend coming up, I think October 22nd and 23rd, where JH Outreach will be uh, hosting and duct conducting this weekend. We have a number of people in our body that are serving during that. It's for especially parents and teams or husband and wife. I would encourage you to see either Jason or Andrea Hill at the Connect counter after the service to get more information on that. And then coming up on Friday, October the 29th through the 30th, there's a women's prayer retreat. There's uh, uh, information on that. We encourage you ladies, if you're looking to be a part of that, do that. And then lastly, our graduating seniors, in case you forgot, you and your parents will be having a lunch after, after our small groups at 12.30 up in the student ministry room in relation to our upcoming uh, mission trip, senior, graduating seniors only. And so uh, if you forgot about that or if you're here and didn't sign up, go ahead and come and we'll make appropriate room for you. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look this morning at the topic of save from dot, 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 indicating there's a question there. What are we saved from? And then what are we saved to? For the last month, we've been uh, emphasizing the, the fact that God has called us to be on mission, every one of us where we are as the body of Christ in our place of work or in our place of uh, play in our school, that God has called us to be on mission with him, that, that every day he gives us opportunities to plant a seed of the gospel, to sow a seed of the gospel in somebody's heart. Or if you recognize that there's already been a seed sown there, that God give us the wisdom to try to cultivate that seed that has been planted in their heart. And, of course, we know the seed from the parable Jesus told. That's the Word of God, and it's the heart where that's planted. And sometimes that soil needs to be cultivated as the Father is drawing them. Jesus said no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. And then if by God's grace he would allow us to watch him save somebody. Who is it that saves a lost soul? God does. It's not up to us to save anybody. We're just faithful to plant and cultivate the seed, and God graces us to be allowed to witness that. Well, I want to propose to you this morning that all that we've spoken of in the last month of sowing, cultivating, and reaping 
is without any purpose if there is not a reality of that doctrine that is taught throughout Scripture and that doctrine of hell. That there's a place of eternal judgment separated from God where individuals who have not trusted Christ and Him alone for their salvation, the Bible teaches explicitly and clearly that there is a place, there's an eternal separation where where our sins are not atoned for if we're not trusted Christ, and the penalty of sin is God's wrath poured out against sin, and there is a place called hell that's recorded in the Scripture. Would everybody say amen to that and agree with that? Now, I imagine that's not a real popular subject today in most pulpits in America, but unfortunately, we cannot get away from that doctrine as it's taught very clearly in Scripture. So if we tell someone, listen, you need to be saved, the natural question that comes to mind is, saved from what? In order to be saved, you've got to be saved from something. And the Bible teaches that, that when we are saved, when we are born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we are saved from the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God that must be meted out against our sin. So we're saved from the wrath of God. God did not send his son so that we might be saved and have a better life here on this side. God did not send his son to the cross so that he would shed his blood and receive the wrath of the Father on him in our place so that we might merely live a more prosperous life. God did not send his son Jesus who was without sin to suffer a death on the cross and have the wrath of God poured out on him in our place so that we might have more stuff on this side. God sent his son so that we could be spared the wrath of a holy God that he took the Father's wrath on himself in our place. That's the only reason that Jesus went to the cross. So all this talk about planting, cultivating, and reaping is all nil if there's not the reality that on the other side there is hell that awaits those who have not trusted Christ for their salvation. Now, if you want to make your witnessing opportunity an awkward situation, begin to talk about the reality of hell. It's true that God loves us. It's true that God sent his son because he loved us. But he loved us so that we might be spared the wrath that would be meted out against sin and all those who have fallen short as a reality of sin. If you want to make the conversation even more awkward or controversy in today's culture, point out the fact that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. You mean there's not another way? You mean there's not universalism that if everybody just kind of lives a good moral life, then God somehow is going to make a way? No, Jesus was very clear. Jamo is not saying this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Now, unbelievers want to deny the existence of an eternal hell. It's more comfortable. Uninformed believers 
doubt sometimes the existence or the reality of an eternal hell. And unfortunately, there are many those who were believers or proposed to be believers who now in this, in this era of time have recanted and said, you know, there's really not a hell and have turned from the message of the cross as a means of salvation from the hell and they've compromised in that to say, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Well, the natural response to that is God doesn't send anyone. We do by refusing to accept what God has provided for us in Christ. They'll pose arguments to it and they'll call it cruel and inhumane that God would do that, that it's a barbarous act to think about God condemning one to hell and punishing them for eternity. They say it's too harsh of a punishment. How would a loving God, how my God, you notice that? Well, my God wouldn't send anyone to hell. You see, what they've done is they formulated in their own mind a God to fit their parameter of what they think God should be rather than looking at the Scriptures to realize that God is a holy God. I can't remember who it was that said this, and I think I've said this before. An old Puritan made the statement that man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols, We like to make God out to be who we want God to be rather than allowing God, recognizing God that he is who he says he is. And because God is a holy and just God, God cannot leave sin unpunished. You see, the Bible certainly teaches hell. As a matter of fact, Jesus said a lot about the reality of hell. There's debate about what are the most discussed topics in the Gospels where Jesus spoke, and and there are about four that rank there in the top, and it depends on what lens you view those Gospel accounts through. Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of God, and he also spoke a lot about the kingdom of darkness. There's a contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus spoke an awful lot about faith and salvation, which was related to the kingdom of God. And yes, Jesus spoke a lot about money. But the thing that Jesus predominantly spoke of throughout all of the Gospels was this reality of hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said this. He said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. This is just a brief example of the number of times that Jesus spoke of the reality of hell. Now, my intention this morning in delivering this message, although I do believe that there are those present in this room and those who may be watching online who have never trusted Christ for their salvation, my intent this morning in this message is not to bring them to faith in Christ, although I would love to. I'd love to see that happen. My intention this morning is to us as the body of Christ, those who have made a profession of Christ and have trusted him and have been born again and reaped the benefits of that salvation, 
salvation, to have our hearts turned, to have our hearts woken to the reality that those who die without Christ will spend an eternity separated from him in hell. Jamo, you're preaching hellfire and brimstone. I'm just declaring what the Bible says. Paul speaks of this in the letter of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 9. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The last book of The New Testament, John writes in Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 to 15, and he says, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, oftentimes we think of death as it being only in this life, that you and I all have an appointed day. We all have a day that we're going to leave this life, that our body is going to die, but our spirit will live forever, and either, either our spirit will live forever in eternal relationship with God or cast away in a place called hell. But the Bible speaks of a second death in the book of Revelation, That the worst death is not this death on this side. The worst death is for those who have never trusted Christ. They will face the second death, and it's an eternal death separated from God. You see, God's justice to answer the question, why would God do this? Why would God punish sin? Why Why would God make one pay for the penalty of their sin? And the answer is simply this, because God's justice demands it. You see, God is a just God, meaning that he judges justly. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and our sin must be judged. If we've trusted Christ and what he's done on our, in our place, on our account, then we are judged righteous in Christ, not because of anything that we have done, but because he placed our sins upon him when he was on the cross. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, and the wrath of a holy God was poured out on him in our place. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes this on the idea of the justice of God. He says, the idea of an objective moral law is inescapable. Think about that. The idea of an objective moral law is inescapable. Every human being understands that there's a moral law. Oftentimes, they determine what morality is, but there is a moral law. Even convicts in prison realize that there is a moral law. There are those who are incarcerated in prison who will be treated more severely by other inmates for certain crimes that they have committed. Even those in prison understand that there's a moral law. When we are wronged or exploited, we call for justice. Anybody been wronged or exploited in the last week? Anybody get cut off on I-20 going into work in the morning? We call for justice. 
It's in us. We understand that there's a moral law and we all want justice. The fact is, I want justice on all those other folks. I don't want it on me, right? We all cry for justice. When we encounter people of grit and grace, he says, we praise them as moral examples. Our conscience is more than mere instinct or self-conditioning. Yet because there is often a great gap between our ideals and actions, we suffer guilt and regret. Despite our denials and excuses, our consciences dog us throughout our days. You see, we all have that. The writer in Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man. We understand that there is a moral law. We understand that there's a moral code, and that moral code calls for justice. You see, we, we, we realize that there, there has to be, if there's a moral law, if there's a right, then there has to be a reward for doing good. And likewise, if there is, then there has to be justice or there has to be punishment when wrong is done. Let's be honest. How many of us do something good and we want at a minimum recognition for the good that we've done? <laughs> Maybe a little picture on Facebook. Maybe a little recognition that we've done something good. You see, we have that. We, we have that sense that there's a reward for doing good. There's also, unless our consciences are seared, there's a punishment for doing bad. You see, it's by God's grace, if we really think about it, that God has postponed, if you will, that God has put off final judgment at this time. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed even presently today. But God in his grace has chosen in our lives, during our lives, to put off his justice until that final moment when we cross over and then it's too late. See, God desires that none should perish, but all come to eternal life. Because we can take the position, if we're not careful, and many think this way, that God is just waiting, God's just wringing his hands, and he cannot wait to judge the sinner, right? God desires that none should perish. But all come to eternal life. That's why we plant. That's why we cultivate. And we know that none comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. My business is not to worry about who the Father is drawing. My business is to proclaim the gospel, and so that's your business as well. I'll leave that up to others with large titles behind their names to, to try to sort out that one. But all I know is that God desires that none should perish and all come to have eternal life. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but he came that the world might be saved. Saved from what? The judgment of God. I like what J.I. Packer writes in the book, Knowing God. 
By the way, it's one of my top ten on my list of reading. If you ever have an opportunity to read this book, get it and read it, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He writes of the goodness and the severity of God when he says this, the character of God is the guarantee that all wrongs will be righted someday. When the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, arrives retribution and it will be exacted and no problems of cosmic unfairness will remain to haunt us. God is the judge, so justice will be done. Mark it down. God will judge. As illustration, I want us to briefly go through this parable of Lazarus and the rich man recorded in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And I want to read this parable and make some points to it after we've read it. Jesus gives this parable. He says, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and he was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at Abraham's side. And he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, there's a great chasm that's been fixed between you and us, and that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from here cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, You have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Three brief things I want to point out from this parable. There are many things that could be said, but the number one is this that hell is a place of pain and hell is a place of agony. Jesus described it as a place of eternal flame, a place of, of the gnashing of teeth where there's anguish there. There's physical torment. Notice what the rich man says here. He says, I am in agony in this flame. Here's some of the other ways Jesus described this place that the Bible calls hell. Matthew chapter 13, verse verse 42, Jesus says, they will throw them into the eternal blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Luke 16, 23, he describes it as an eternal torment. It's not a temporary holding place that we can pray somebody out of. It's an eternal place. For us to have the concept of 
eternity is very difficult. He says in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, where the worm does not die. Luke 16, as we've seen here, a place from which there's no return, even to warn loved ones. Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, he describes it as a place of outer darkness. Matthew 10, 28, he uses the term Gehana, and Gehana was a place outside of Jerusalem where all the trash would be taken and the trash would be burned, and it was eternally burning, continually burning, 365 days a year, 12 months out of the year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and it was a place of stench where there were eternal flames where all the garbage. He used that as an illustration to show the reality of an eternal hell. You see, there'll be emotional and mental regret as well. Listen to what the rich man said, or what Abraham said to him. Remember that during your life, you received your good things. Essentially, this rich man was living life for himself. And Abraham reminds him, listen, you saw your life as, as just almost in a sense of these are things that you deserve, that, that you've lived your life to the full, and it's a message to those who are living their lives to the full to try to get as much as they can, to try to gain as much as they can, that there'll be a remembrance and an emotional torment that they forfeited the righteousness of God through Christ for all of these things that they could pursue, that at the end of life, they're all gone. I was reminded when my dad was passing, my dad was a good man, loved the Lord, but he accumulated not a whole lot, but all of his life's accumulations. As he was there in the assisted living and dying that week of cancer, I can remember looking around in that little one bedroom and one little studio room, and I realized all of my dad's life come down to these things that he now possesses. What are we living for? At that moment, Dad didn't care about the few possessions he had in those rooms. What Dad cared about were the relationships that he had in his life. Dad was affirmed by many people that came through to see him in that last weekend before he died of the impact that my dad had had in their life because he was a godly man. You see, at the end of your life and at the end of my life, that is all that matters. We notice that hell is a place of separation. Abraham said there's a great chasm and it's been fixed between us and you. So that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Remember, he's asking, well, can you at least send Lazarus? Can you send Lazarus over to this place so that he might dip the tip of his finger in water just to quench my thirst? But there's a great chasm that's there, and the chasm meets out in two different ways. We see in this rich man's life that there was a chasm that separated from him from his friends and his family because he couldn't go there to warn them and tell them, listen, listen, turn, repent, trust Christ. 
There's a chasm that's there. But the greatest chasm is there is a chasm that's fixed between those who have spent an eternity in hell and God himself. You see, hell is an eternal place and it is fixed. Listen to what Jesus says again in Matthew 25 verse 46. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into the eternal life. And so we've taken the first part of this message and we've seen that, that there is a thing that we are saved from. Let me sum it again briefly what we are saved from. We are saved from the penalty of sin and we are saved from the wrath of God. You see, there are a lot of other benefits on this side, right? Amen? It'd be crazy to say there aren't benefits to, to knowing Christ on this side of death. But the greatest thing is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, and we've been saved from the wrath of God, which will inevitably send us to an eternal separation from him and hell. What are we saved to is the next part of the question. What are we saved to is the next part of the question. You see, one does not have to suffer eternal damnation in hell. Jesus said, again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so there is a way to the Father. And Jesus has been the only human being who has ever fulfilled the absolute righteous requirements of God to be in relationship with him. He knew no sin. He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin, and he was not born in sin. He was crucified, and he suffered the wrath in our place. He took the cross, and he nullified its power. You see, the cross is really a sham if there's no hell. There's no significance in the cross if there's no separation from God. You see, it's His holiness. The Bible is very clear that God is a holy God, and it's also very clear that you and I are utterly depraved, meaning that we are as far separated from God as we could ever be because of our sin. And it's not that we're separated from God because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're born in sin, the Bible teaches. And there's no good right act that we can ever do to change that. There are many who will, after spending oftentimes their whole life, in a church, have simply taken on the form of Christianity and the morality of Christianity, but they have never trusted Christ for their salvation. They have the idea somehow that maybe they're going to clean up their life, maybe they're going to set things straight, maybe they're going to start attending church, and hey, maybe I'll volunteer in this area, maybe I'll volunteer in this area, maybe I'll be a good church member and I'll tithe every week, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that, but when we stand before Jesus, he's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. You see, righteous works will not save any of us. Morality 
I know some unbelievers that are far more moral than many of you and me included. I mean, they're good moral people. You say, how, how could they go to hell? They're, they're good folk. You see, it's that nature that they're born into, that they have a nature of sin. And the only way that that can be taken care of is by placing their trust in Christ, what He has done for them, receiving His gift of salvation and being made the righteousness of God in Christ. In conclusion, notice that Abraham tells him after he desires to go to his family and friends and and warn them. Abraham tells him they have Moses and the prophets referring to those Moses, we know of Moses, who proclaimed the gospel and a foreshadowing of salvation by faith. And they have the prophets who spoke of this. They have the prophets and Moses. If if they won't listen to him, they're not going to listen to anybody. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 7 says this. How then can they call on him that they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Folks, God has given us the message. And the message of salvation includes that there's something that we are saved from. I often wonder sometimes if there may not be more effect in my sharing of my faith if I got more to the point of there is something you've got to be saved from. I'll be honest with you. It's an uncomfortable conversation. Anybody with me on that? You see, we've been lulled, I think, into believing that the gospel message is all about love. Now, hear me. Don't tune me out. It is about love. But the gospel message includes that fact where Jesus called in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, repent, turn from your sin." so that you might enter into the kingdom of God and not remain in the kingdom of darkness where you're bound by sin. And there's a judgment of God that's coming because the natural question is, why do I have to be saved? Because when you're saved, the rest of your life is just great. You don't ever have any problems. No, because when we're saved, we're saved from the wrath of a holy God because of our sin. To what? To be made the righteousness of God in Christ? Saved to what? Being saved, adopted as a son and a daughter of God in his family? To what? An eternity spent with the holy God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever 
and ever. The older I get, I'll turn 60 this month. I know, I look 40, right? (laughs) The older I get, the more of a reality this becomes. And while I, like all of you, when someone we know loves, leaves, departs from this life, it's becoming more and more evident to me the reality that there was a day in their life they trusted Christ for their salvation. And now on that day when they took their final breath, they have seen the reality of their salvation. Because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't have a death wish, but I don't fear it. Amen? I like what Billy Graham said. I don't worry about dying. It's the way I'm going to die that bothers me. (laughs) When that time happens, we'll see the reality of our salvation. Oh, it's good on this side. (laughs) But I have not seen how good it's going to be on the other side. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.